Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, ants, beetles, and planets. In addition, Professor Michael Peskin from the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center will discuss string theory. Also, we'll find out what Einstein's cross is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Pretty good, pretty good. How would you like to be honored for your existence? Um, well, considering I've been dishonored for my existence for quite some time, that would be quite nice. Uh, what about being named after slime molds? Hmm, yeah, well, if there's many things that I could be named after, I guess that would be 39th on the list. 39th? Right after uh, Spunk. Spunk? Okay. So it turns out several figures from the Bush administrations have now been... Of slime mold beetles named after them. Okay, so we have a uh, slime mold Cheney, for instance. Uh, actually, the more precise name is Agathidium chenei. <laughs> and this was purposeful on uh, the part of the namers? In fact, uh, it was uh, meant to honor them. This was um, work carried out by Quentin Wheeler and Kelly Miller. I guess they're prominent entomologist uh, from at Cornell, and they found 65 new species of slime mold beetles, and they decided to name some of them after people in the administration. And uh, they named them for their, quote, as fellow citizens who have the courage of their convictions and are willing to do the very difficult and unpopular work of living up to the principles of freedom and democracy rather than accepting the expedient or popular. Much as beetles do, I guess. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, to me, it just seems like uh, it's making a statement that they feed on the slime of the society. But... <laughs> All right, well, that's kind of cool. Uh, so something for everybody, really. Indeed. Yeah. And it was reported in a recent edition of Chemical and Engineering News. So what's your favorite planet in the solar system? My favorite planet? You know, I go for the biggest, so I'd go with Jupiter. Oh, that's a very nice one. Although it's a bit airy, I heard. <laughs> well, how about this planet, 2M127b? Hmm, sounds like a statistic to me. <laughs> well, it may be a statistical anomaly yet, but uh, as far as uh, re- astronomers can tell, this is actually the first planet that's been uh, photographed with uh, uh, light telescopes. Wow, so we can uh, also see it through a telescope then? Uh, well, not through your telescope, but through a telescope at the European Southern Observatory, <laughs> which can take these kind of photos. And they basically used... Uh, a number of uh, different uh, outfittings for this revolutionary system that could capture this particular image mm-hmm. of a star uh, orbiting its brown dwarf, of a planet orbiting its brown dwarf star. So it's quite fascinating because it's, uh, it was unknown whether or not this image actually represented the star or not, but uh, they did other uh, measurements, for instance, from Hubble and also using the gravitational types of uh, measurements that have previously been used right. to basically confirm, I guess, pretty much almost 99.99% sure they say that this is the first captured image of a planet around its star. Wow. So uh, have they found anything interesting on this planet? 
Uh, well, I, they haven't yet contacted Life on it, so <laughs> I guess that's <laughs> not good. It, it is quite massive, perhaps uh, uh, about five times as massive as Jupiter, but it's still well below the uh, 13 uh, mass times mass unit that would qualify it as, for instance, another star. Oh, wow. So it's definitely a planet, but uh, still very massive. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, it is quite fascinating, and it was... Um, it was work that was uh, initially done by Gail Chauvin of the European Southern Observatory, and it was published in an upcoming issue of Astronomy and Astrophysics. So, do you like ants, Charles? I love ants. They're my favorite animal. Okay, but you don't eat them, right? Uh, well, since ants are my favorite animal, the anteater is my least favorite animal. Yeah. My enemy's enemy. My... Yeah, your, your friend's enemy is also your enemy. That's right. Wow. And my enemy's friend is also my enemy. <laughs> so my friend's ter- friend? Definitely my enemy. <laughs> <laughs> it turns Who out- are you? Are you my friend or are you my enemy? <laughs> Maybe I'm just a reflection of you. <laughs> Ooh, perhaps that is why I hate myself. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out plants have enemies too. Oh no. Yeah. Not the ants. No, well, a lot of ants <laughs> like to eat the plants. Okay. A lot of germs and uh, fungus also like to chew on the plants too okay but it turns out there's one instance of plants and uh, ants cooperating okay uh and to fight the fungus no to fight against other species of ants oh wow <laughs> and the way that it does it, it rewards these uh ants called a uh, pseudo pseudomyrex ants uh with nectar ah. and it's nectar that they can digest but the other ants cannot okay so there's an incentive for these particular ants to fend off the other ones oh, i see so they get basically the uh, the juice and uh it prevents the other ants from eating the leafy leafy parts yeah oh excellent but it's a very interesting um instance of symbiotic relationship yes here. indeed so his their friend's enemy is their enemy <laughs> <laughs> i wonder what the plants are Hmm. Uh, I guess they're my friends. <laughs> yeah. Well, interesting. I, I just uh, thought about uh, the book that Michael Pollan re- had written about the uh, desire of botany, where he was saying, uh, in fact, it's probably the plants which are also influencing evolution mm. just as much as we are influencing them. Oh, because, sure. Yeah. You know, by they, having us taking care of the plants, the plants are also be able to live a little longer. All right. Yeah, of course. I mean, they're the, the source of the food chain. So. <laughs> yeah. So this is an interesting work carried out by Martin Heel of the University of Duisburg-Essen in Germany, and it was uh, reported in Science. Okay, and finally, uh, what's your favorite kind of smog? My favorite kind of smog? I would say the multicolored ones. <laughs> you know, a little bit of green, pink, and... Uh-huh. Some blue. Well, it's nice because smog actually leads to, I guess, some of the most spectacular uh, sunsets you see, right? Yeah, it's very beautiful. For all the refraction. Ah, uh, we need more of those. Uh, but it actually turns out that uh, smog is actually a little more prevalent on the weekends than on the weekdays. Oh, uh, I thought uh, all the industries are not working on weekends, though. Yeah, well, that's kind of fascinating because uh, you would, it's kind of counterintuitive. You would think that there'd be more smog on the weekend, weekdays. Right. Uh, so a group of researchers at uh, university, actually here at UC Berkeley, led by Robert Harley, are actually interested in why this is. And as yet, they have no real definitive um, explanation. But smog is actually they know higher in the um, during the uh, when when the sun, during the summer months and when the sun is higher. Apparently, leads to the formation of smog through the uh, conversion of nitric o- nitrogen oxides. Right. So one theory that they have is that uh, since on the weekend peak driving time actually shifts from the morning to the afternoons, ah. that's actually when the sun is out more, right. leading to more smog buildup. Right. Yeah. Even though the amount of traffic doesn't really increase or decrease, mm-hmm. it's just the timing of it. Wow, that's very interesting. 
So yeah, fascinating uh, work and uh, useful to know. I guess uh, we should try to get people to wake up earlier on the weekends and get to where they're going, right? Yeah, get up and go, man. <laughs> All right, but uh, don't go away uh, because uh, there's more coming up here. And if you want, you can take a look. This is going to be in the recent edition of uh, the Chemical and Engineering News. And that's all for our look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Michael Peskin joins us to talk about particle physics, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. Well, 2005 is the year of physics, and joining us today is a very special guest, Professor Michael Peskin from the Stanford Linear Accelerator, and he's going to tell us a little bit about his work in theoretical physics. Professor Peskin, thanks for joining us today. Uh, thank you very much. Could you tell us a little bit about the work that you do at Slack these days? Well, I'm interested in, in all of these uh, strange theories of new physics, superstring theory and what's called supersymmetry. We'll talk a little about that. People now even take quite seriously models where the world has more than three dimensions. And it's really fun to think about these things. And uh, many popular articles are written about how these things might occur if we could only see extremely short distances. And the thing I'm really interested in is, well, yes, but what can we really do about it? And I'm very excited because I think that we're looking forward to new accelerators operating, big particle accelerators, that can really access these phenomena. So we can do very concrete experiments to find out whether these things are real or not. And so this is... Uh, my main area of research right now to analyze experiments on supersymmetry and extra dimensions and cosmic dark matter, looking at phenomena that might actually appear when we turn on the accelerators of the next uh, five to ten years, and to figure out how we're really going to know which of these models is the correct one. I see. And these accelerators, the new ones that are being proposed are supposed to be much higher energy than the ones we have right now. Uh, to give us an idea, what kind of scale are we looking at? You measure the power of an accelerator by the energies that you can make. Typically, you have one set of particles moving around in a circle in one way, another set of particles moving in the opposite direction. You bring the two beams together head on, and those collisions have a certain amount of energy per particle. The way we like to think about energy is in terms of E equals mc squared being equivalent to the mass of some particle. So a good reference point is the mass of the proton, the thing that makes up protons and neutrons make up atomic nuclei. The mass of a proton or a neutron is a unit called a billion electron volts. So a proton mass, E equals mc squared. The highest energy accelerator that's operating is a collider at the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory outside of Chicago. That will generate an energy in a proton-antiproton collision of two trillion electron volts, that is 2,000 proton masses. And that's quite a bit of energy. And with that, we could possibly create particles that are, if you like, 
up to that mass. Now, in the next, about two years from now, a new accelerator is going to start operating at uh, the European laboratory CERN in Geneva called the Large Hadron Collider, and that will get us to 14 trillion electron volts, 14,000 times the mass of a... Now, the phenomenon that I'm interested in generally occur in the energy region of a few hundred proton masses a few hundred billion electron volts. So why do you need so much energy to make? Well, the reason is that all these accelerators accelerate protons, and the proton is not an elementary particle. The proton is a big bag of what we call quarks and gluons. The quarks are the things inside the proton, and the gluons are other quanta, like photons, that hold them together. So by the time you get down to a quark-antiquark, or a gluon-gluon collision, you lose a factor of 6 to 10 in energy. And so the Fermilab accelerator can reach energies of a few hundred um, electron volts, mainly for things that would be exotic kinds of quarks, for example. And at the energies of this uh, Large Hadron Collider at CERN, we expect to go up past a trillion volts in the elementary collisions. And then the theories say all of these phenomena, the dark matter, the supersymmetry, really ought to be there. And their manifestations are actually quite spectacular. So, for example, let's say you produce cosmic dark matter. Well, what's cosmic dark? It's this stuff which we see because we see its gravitational effects in the universe. But it's invisible, it's neutral, a light doesn't scatter from it, it's just somehow there. If you look at the dynamics of galaxies, you can estimate how much mass there is in the stars in a galaxy that you can see. Then you can ask how much mass there is when you look at things that orbit the galaxy and you measure the gravitational force with which they're pulled in. Typically that gravitational mass of a galaxy is, depending on how you measure it, 10 to 50 times the mass and the stars and gas that are in the center. And so from that you get a picture that a galaxy is a little glowing bulb in the center of stars and gas inside a huge sphere of unseen, invisible, very weakly interacting matter called dark matter. And we would like to know what this dark matter is. If you make a model of dark matter, it's very plausible that the dark matter is a neutral particle, a very heavy one, weighing a hundred to a few hundred times the mass of the proton. At the Tevatron, at the Fermilab accelerator, we don't yet make it. I'm, I'm sorry, it might have been true. It didn't happen. But at the uh, Large Hadron Collider, you expect to actually get to the scale where you're making dark matter, and then you'll have events that look like this. A quark and an antiquark annihilate. They make some exotic kind of quark and antiquark, which go off in a transverse direction. That thing then decays to an ordinary quark on each side and a dark matter particle. What you then get are events with many, many tracks containing uh, quarks, antiquarks, pions, protons, kaons. In fact, jets of these tracks going off in different directions, but the total apparent energy and momentum in the, in the process is not conserved. And the reason for that is that in some other directions, these unseen dark matter particles go. So we're very interested in looking for these so-called missing energy and momentum events, where on the one hand, jets of particles come off that we can see and they're at very high energy, uh, maybe a trillion or more electron volts. 
And there's also a missing trillion electron volts carried off by the dark matter particle. It turns out this is a very distinctive signature at the LHC. Uh, my colleagues in Berkeley have been studying it in great detail, and they're just really um, straining at the bit to uh, go look for these events. Once we get there, we'll know that we're in the era of uh, a new kind of physical law, and then um, it'll be very interesting to go and look for this at this and other accelerators. So this dark matter, is the characteristic somehow similar to that of uh, the material in a black hole? There's been some speculations that at high enough energies you could create mini black holes in these accelerators that will suddenly swallow the entire world around it. Uh, is that unfounded or is it just pure speculation? First of all, it depends on being in a particular kind of theory, which I'll describe in a moment. But I'm not too worried about mini black holes swallowing the world. Um, there, we've done the experiment. Uh, cosmic rays have bombarded the moon for four and a half billion years, and those collisions can go up to very high energy, in fact, far beyond what the Large Hadron Collider will produce. Mm. And the moon's still there, so I think we're not going to create anything that's actually going to swallow the moon. Um, there's some statistics that you should do here to figure out whether it's enough. A quite serious job has been done on that. And so I think uh, we're not in danger from these accelerators. But nevertheless, there is really the possibility that at these energies you could create mini black holes. And that comes in theories where instead of ordinary three dimensions, there are actually extra dimensions of space. Some of them very large, the three that we see, have to be the size of the universe. But it's possible to have other dimensions that are just, if you like, curled up real small. So instead of being extended lines, they're rings. So there is a fourth and a fifth dimension, let's say, that we, if you could walk in those directions, you would very quickly, as it were, go all the way around and come back to where you started. In distances, probably less than a tenth of a millimeter. But nevertheless, those dimensions could exist. In such theories, quantum gravity actually occurs not, as in ordinary theories, at really extremely small distances, 20 orders of magnitude, smaller than those we're familiar with. But it occurs very close to the scales that we've actually probed with accelerators. And so in those theories, you can make gravitons, gra quantum gravity particles, that disappear and go off into the extra dimensions. So there's a kind of missing energy event that you can make in theories like that. And then as you go to higher energies, because you're now in the regime of quantum gravity, you can make little mini black holes, and then those black holes will uh, decay by what's called Hawking radiation, emitting particles, and basically turn all their energy back into particles. It's, I think it's kind of a long shot to see that, but the signatures are very distinctive. So. Once again, when we turn on the LHC, we will look and see whether we can find black holes in this way. Now, are these black holes dark matter? Well, people do. There are people who believe that dark matter is made of little black holes. But the black holes you make in this process aren't the right ones. These little black holes that would be made at the LHC very rapidly decay by emitting, um, again, radiation of ordinary particles, and they very rapidly lose all of their energy. In order to make dark matter out of black holes, you need things that are, if you like, planet mass black holes. And those would have to have been produced in the early universe. And then you have to argue that 
despite all the things that have happened between then and now, for example, the cosmic inflation, that the black holes weren't somehow swept away so that they could be still around. Myself, I'm not a, a partisan of the theory that the dark matter is black holes. I think it actually has to be a new kind of elementary particle. But this is a controversial position. Uh, we'll find out. So there are many theories um, going on right now, including string theory, um M theory and also uh, twister theory. Is there a particular flavor that you're interested in these days? Well, let's talk a little about string theory. Um, M theory is, if you like, a kind of string theory, or string theory is a kind of M theory. I mean, that's a theological debate. We could ask, what is it about string theory that we could actually test at these new accelerators? Well, something that is not a prediction of every model of string theory, but it's fairly generic, and I think gives us also tools to look deeper into the theory, is something called supersymmetry. So let me tell you a little about what that is. In nature, there are two kinds of particles. There are particles we call fermions, which are particles like electrons, quarks, protons and neutrons, neutrinos. These are particles that matter is made out of, and they obey something called the Pauli exclusion principle, that two electrons you can't put in the same place. And so if you have something like uranium with 92 electrons, every electron has to be in a slightly different place around the atom. So that makes the atom rigid. It can't be compressed too much because then the electrons would invade each other's spaces. And that's impossible for these kinds of particles called fermions. So the fermions are the particles that make up matter. Then there's another kind of particle called a boson. These particles obey, the name comes from Bose-Einstein statistics. And these particles, on the contrary, like to be in the same place. So they can, a lot of those particles can get together and form big coherent fields. So for example, when you have an electromagnetic field, an electromagnetic wave, a radio wave, let's say, or light, that's a lot of photons which have gotten together in the same quantum state and then they propagate essentially moving together. So the extreme example of this is a laser. So in a laser you prepare a medium in such a way that if you start one photon in a certain quantum state, it causes many atoms to radiate photons into the same quantum state. You get a, a truly intense beam and you folks have all seen it. Lasers can melt through steel and do other magical things. Yes. So it seems like these two kinds of particles are completely different, fermions and bosons. Nevertheless, there are quantum theories in which there's a symmetry where bosons can be turned into fermions and fermions can be turned into bosons. And in those theories, every fermion, the electron, the up quark, the down quark, has a partner, which is a boson, and every boson, for example, the photon or even the graviton, has a partner which is a fermion. Now, this kind of symmetry, which has many magical properties, is called supersymmetry. It was originally discovered as a property of string theory. And in fact, probably, if supersymmetry is found, that would be an indication the really underlying theory of nature would be a string theory. So it's very interesting to first go look for supersymmetry. Is there a boson partner of the electron, is there a fermion partner of the photon? Now one bonus of supersymmetry is that the fermion partner of the photon would be a heavy, stable, 
neutral, very weakly interacting particle. So it's a just perfect candidate for being the cosmic darkness. So it is absolutely possible that we could have string theory as the theory of gravity, supersymmetry appearing at our accelerators, and supersymmetry giving rise to the dark matter that we see in cosmology. And so what I would like to do is to go, you know, really look for these things. Can we discover, as I've told you before, these events with missing energy? Can we then probe further and prove that these particles have the properties of the boson partners of quarks and the fermion partners of the photons, and then make the whole theory tied again? So switching gears a little bit, um, we're here at the California Academy of Sciences today where we had a discussion on the physicist Richard P. Feynman. And um, I was just wondering if you could perhaps share an anecdote about him or his research. Well, Feynman, of course, is one of the, the founding fathers of this discipline of quantum field theory, in which one does all of the, the calculations that I've been describing already. Right now, we, we regard the forces of nature as being of four kinds, the electromagnetic interactions, the weak interactions, which have to do with radioactivity of nuclei, for example, the strong interactions, which are the forces that bind nuclei, and gravity. Now, Feynman, uh, together with uh, Julian Schwinger and uh, Shinichiro Tomonaga, was the person who discovered the laws of the quantum theory of electromagnetism. For the weak interactions, actually Feynman also is one of the people responsible for the basic law of weak interactions, or at least he and uh, his collaborator Murray Gelman and independently Marshak and Sudershan wrote down the first equations that were very close to our current theory of weak interactions. Later, uh, Steve Weinberg, Shelley Glashow, and Abdus Salam uh, made a somewhat better theory that subsumes this one and is now known to be correct actually to fractions of a percent accuracy in our latest experiments. But Feynman also made a very important contribution to originally figuring out what the structure of this weak interaction was. For the strong interactions, we have a theory called quantum chromodynamics, and actually the discovery of the basic property of quantum chromodynamics was the reason for the award of the Nobel Prize last year to David Gross, Frank Wilczek, and David Pollitzer. Um, quantum chromodynamics actually has a structure which is very much like the quantum theory of electrodynamics that Feynman discovered. And actually his methods were absolutely essential to the work that Gross, Wilczek, and Pollitzer did in eventually unraveling the theory of the strong interactions. So somehow, even though Feynman wasn't involved in these latter developments, his influence was absolutely central to people figuring out what the pieces were and putting them together in the right way to make the theories of these new interactions. Now actually toward the end of his life, Feynman was still skeptical that we really understood the strong and weak interactions. And it was only really quite late in his life that he was convinced that uh, these other people had gotten it right. But he provided the methods. He had the right to be skeptical about it. But I think uh, eventually before he died, he was convinced. Now, as he would probably be the first to tell you, you can never say, well, this is everything that's in nature and there's nothing else. Um, there are always questions. You can always be curious about what lies beyond. I think with 
the dark matter and several other problems that we have in uh, elementary particle physics, we now have good reasons to think that there are yet new interactions beyond the ones that we know about now that are, remain to be discovered. And uh, once again, uh, the methods that he introduced and the physical understanding of how you deal with quantum theories of interacting fields, those are absolutely going to be essential for us to figure out what's going on at the next stage. Um, Professor Peskin, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. Uh, thank you very much. And we were just talking to Professor Michael Peskin from Slack and Professor of Physics at Stanford. This is Berkeley Rocks you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we'll find out what Einstein's cross is. So stay tuned. To last week's question of the week. What is Einstein's cross? <clears throat> An Einstein's cross is produced when multiple images of a star are seen <clears throat> due to gravitational bending of the light. And prove it does that light is affected by gravity. And that's Einstein's cross. Yeah, thank you very much there, Yona. You're the greatest thing I've ever, I've ever seen, you know. You should come to California. You can be my vice vice uh, governor. The governor loves you. <laughs> yeah, and so the governor, when he comes from Austria, he comes to this great country. You know why? Because you're protected in this country. <laughs> you can't come anywhere without being protected in this country. But you know, protection from the borders is different from protecting chemical elements. But that's the thing that I know about. It's protecting chemical elements. How do you do that? Well, if you know the answer, or think you know the answer, email us here at groxandhotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but hey, you just might know how to be protected by the governor. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Rocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Rocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, the girl in the green jacket. What are you at getting terribly fat? What do you think will come of that? I don't like the look of it. Oompa, loompa, doompa dee da. If you're not greedy, you will go far. You will live in happiness too. Like the oompa, loompa, doompa dee da.